This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. It's primary day in Colorado. If you're unaffiliated and haven't voted yet, remember you can only turn in one party's ballot. Polls close at 7 tonight. CPR News will have live coverage this evening on air and online at CPR.org. Okay, on to our first story, another big week at the U.S. Supreme Court. Justices in a 5-4 to four decision have ruled President Trump's travel ban is legal. We're going to focus, though, on a case the high court decided not to hear. It deals with a florist in Washington state who refused to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding. Sounds a lot like that masterpiece case out of Colorado, doesn't it? I'm joined once again by associate law professor Jim Oleski. He's at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. And hi again, Jim. It's good to be with you, Ryan. So on Monday, the nation's highest court sent the case of Arlene's Flowers back to Washington State Supreme Court. Very few words to go on here. The case is remanded for further consideration in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. So Masterpiece is the case decided earlier this month in favor of that religious baker in Lakewood. Uh, First off, remind us of this flower case and how it connects. So the flower case also involves a business owner who has religious objections to same-sex marriage. And when a couple requested that the florist make flowers for the wedding, just like in the Colorado case, there was a request for a cake for the wedding, uh, the florist in Washington state refused to provide those flowers. So the same type of claims were litigated. The state charged the business with violating state non-discrimination law, and the florist claimed they had a First Amendment constitutional right to decline service. Okay. So the justices in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case out of Colorado ruled rather narrowly. They didn't get to that fundamental question of whether a business has the right to refuse service on religious grounds. There was some thought that maybe the high court would take up Arlene's flowers and rule more broadly. Are you surprised that they took this alternate route to send it back to Washington's state Supreme Court? Not entirely surprised. What happened right after Masterpiece was decided, Arlene's Flowers attorneys filed a supplemental brief with the United States Supreme Court, making the argument that they could show in their case the same type of hostility or similar hostility by the the state officials in the case, basically that they could win under the narrow rationale of Masterpiece. Uh Uh, The state filed a brief disagreeing, but the Supreme Court typically doesn't decide factual disputes like that in the first instance. So it's entirely possible the court took the position of, well, let's send this back to the lower court where they'll work through the fa- this factual disagreement if the, you know, it gets resolved there and the case can't be decided narrowly on that ground, then maybe it comes back up to the Supreme Court to address those broader legal issues that you mentioned earlier. The narrower legal issues in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision had to do with uh, a hostility towards religion on the part of a public body. And I I guess there was claims of that in the Arlene's Flowers case. Well, one of the interesting things is, um, and this is going to have to be decided when the case goes back to the Washington Supreme Court, Arlene's Flowers actually didn't make that argument to the Washington Supreme Court the first time around. So it's possible the Washington Supreme Court could reject that argument on procedural grounds and basically say, you waived that argument. You could have raised it, but you didn't. We'll see how that plays out. Um, But yes, that's 
Arlene's Flowers said to the United States Supreme Court, hey, we can make the claim that the attorney general of the state of Washington and the judge who decided this case below were biased against us, and here are the reasons why. And that's what, at least in the first instance, we would expect the Washington Supreme Court to address on remand. Okay, so uh, a lot of legal wrangling there. I guess the, the, the big fundamental question is we are no closer to answering that, that broader question about free speech uh, versus public accommodation, huh? Correct. Although, interestingly, since we last spoke, there was also a development here in Oregon. As you may recall, we have a bakery cake here, uh, case here called Sweet Cakes by Melissa, and the Oregon Supreme Court just this uh, last week denied review of the Oregon Court of Appeals decision, which ruled against the baker. So that case is now poised for the attorneys for the baker to appeal to the United States Supreme Court. So that's yet another case where the court could take up potentially uh, the issue. And as you mentioned in our last conversation, there's another Colorado case that's working its way through the lower courts. I think that's called 303 Creative, if I recall correctly. And then there's an Arizona case, a decision that came down there right after Masterpiece, the first sort of red state uh, decision on this matter involving a calligraphy company. And so that's yet another case that's working through the lower courts. So there will be opportunities for the Supreme Court to take up this issue in the years to come. But it strikes me that in giving the case back to the Washington State Supreme Court, this case of Arlene's Flowers, and telling that state's high court, reconsider this and use Masterpiece as your lens, uh, Mm -hmm. that's an example of how the Masterpiece ruling out of Colorado reverberates. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think at a minimum, this remand was a victory for Arlene's flowers because it keeps the case alive in a way that if the court had just denied review and the Washington Supreme Court decision stayed in place, you know, the case would have been over. Now the case continues on. And I suspect that the attorneys for Arlene's flowers, they probably don't expect to win at the Washington Supreme Court, but they're hoping to get back to the United States Supreme Court. And they're probably hoping to do so after there's been a change in personnel at that court. Well, Jim, thanks for running through this with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. He's Jim Oleski, Associate Law Professor at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Most of this state is in drought. A lack of snow over the winter and minimal rainfall this spring set up perfect conditions for wildfires, like the 416 fire near Durango. Some precipitation helped firefighters gain an upper hand, but it has started growing again now that hot and dry conditions have returned. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood has been following Colorado's drought, and she met a geographer who uses satellites to map out just how dry the West is. His name is John Abatagalu. He's at the University of Idaho. And he's built this tool that not only tracks rainfall, but tells you how wet or dry the forest is. Dark red means hot and dry with a lot of stuff that can burn. And there's a lot of dark red on this map where the 416 fire began. John Abatagalu, welcome. Thanks. People were really surprised to hear that the 416 fire was named after the 416th fire this year in the Durango area. Your mapping tool, though, shows a pretty dry landscape. I'm curious, what surprises you uh, as you're looking at this tool in terms of the dryness that we're seeing in Colorado this year? Yeah, so this this dryness across Colorado doesn't just cover Colorado. It actually covers much of the southwestern United States, but it's really the epicenter is right around that Four Corners region. 
drought is really defined as basically uh, where the relative water um, demand exceeds the relative water supply. And drought varies across different sectors, whether we're talking about, you know, water in the form of snowpack for winter recreation or water in the form of stream flow for fish and irrigation. Or in the case of fire, this is sort of water for surface moisture that keeps fuels relatively um, relatively wet. And what surprises me is that this year, uh, the drought has basically checked all those boxes across across the south, south, southwestern portion of Colorado. One of the most stunning things I see in your tool when you look at the fire danger mapper is just this metric for how dry fuels are in the ground. It's this thing called the 100-hour fuel moisture percentile. Can you talk a little bit more about this metric and you know what it shows right now? So the, the, when the fuel moistures get down to you know 10% or less, vegetation becomes very receptive to igniting and carrying fire. It's just waiting there for a lightning ignition or a stray cigarette butt or what have you. And when we map that out, we see a broad area across much of the southwestern United States, including southwestern Colorado, where fuel moistures are quite dry. And they're dry um, also relative to the historical record. And that's how we rank things in terms of these percentiles. I mean, right now, looking at the maps, it just shows how dry it is across much of the West. What are you expecting this summer in terms of wildfire danger? This is the time of the year when things are typically at their driest. So climatologically, this is pre-monsoon. Monsoon typically will come in and provide enough moisture, raise humidity levels, and you know put an end to large-scale fire activity. And so we're going to wait on the monsoon. The monsoon typically arrives in July. Fortunately, I think at least for the southwest, there was this fairly large widespread precipitation event that came basically at the apex of the fire season um, with the remnants of uh, f- former Hurricane Bud. And that helped sort of, you know, squash the fire danger a bit. But one thing that we also know is that those fuels can dry back up pretty quickly under warm conditions. One of the things that we do worry about pre-monsoon is you start actually bringing a little bit of moisture into the region. That little bit of moisture ends up actually allowing for thunderstorms and, 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 and whatnot and lightning. And if you get thunderstorms and lightning, but with not enough precipitation, that's the recipe for a lot of new fire starts. Well, speaking of fire starts, I mean, how responsible are humans for starting wildfires versus, say, lightning strikes? That's a great question. My colleague Jennifer Balch from the University of Colorado led a study that I was involved in last year that showed that about 84 percent of wildfires across the U.S. are started by humans. And that includes everything from vehicles to power line to arson. But the numbers are quite different geographically and seasonally. And so in Colorado, humans are responsible for starting about 30 percent of the fires. But humans end up actually adding fire ignitions. So they're actually adding fire to the landscape where it's not naturally supposed to be. We have to remember that fire is a natural process. Not all fire is bad. But when humans are starting fires, those tend to be unnatural, of course, and they're also they also tend to be they tend to coincide with where humans reside and that provides a lot of impacts to to life. The one additional thing to mention is that nationwide the most number of wildfires start around a 3-day period encompassing July 4th. And that's not just coincidental, that's of course uh, a really nice cultural signature that we have on the fire record. So we, we will have to pay attention to July 4th in areas that are in drought, 
including much of Colorado, something that we'll be paying attention to. I know that uh, fireworks displays are just so central, uh, especially here in Colorado. A lot of smaller mountain towns, it's a big tourist season, and that's a big tourist draw. I mean, what do you think, as we're facing a future with hotter and more extreme wildfires, do you think that these fireworks displays, as we face more drought potentially, needs to, to be a thing of the past? Fireworks are a tradition, right? It's part of our culture. But it does happen to occur at a time of the year where, at least in the western United States, fuels are quite dry. And we see a lot of firework-caused fire fires. And we see during drought conditions like we had this year that there, there are cancellation of, of fireworks shows to mitigate against the potential for wildfires. I think we do need to think about sort of trying to reduce the number of human-caused fires in the landscape, particularly ones that coincide with where people live. And fireworks seem like an opportunity for implementing policy. How will climate change affect what wildfires look like? Are we going to be seeing a different type of wildfire season in 10 or 20 years? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that we've already seen a change in terms of what our wildfire seasons look like today due to climate change. And that is we have a much longer season of the year where fuels are receptive to fire. We have seen that fires are burning longer, that they're growing larger. And part of that is attributable to changes we've seen in climate. Part of that's climate variability. And then part of that's sort of the human story. But going forward, you know, again, you need three ingredients for a fire. You need three ingredients for a campfire. Fuel, you need that fuel to be dry enough, ignition sources. And climate change is, is really working to create drier fuels during the fire season. And in some, in some respects, it also might be changing the ways in which ignitions occur across the landscape. There's some evidence to suggest that lightning is going to become more frequent in a warmer climate. So in 10 to 20 years, climate change isn't going away. By all accounts, we should see a longer period of the year where we have high fire danger, where we have extreme fire danger. More often would we expect these maps that are on the climate mapper tool to be darker shades of, of red. And those ingredients basically allow you to have high fire potential. Well, John, thank you. Thank you. John Abadoglu speaking with CPR's energy and environment reporter, Grace Hood. He's part of the Applied Climate Science Lab at the University of Idaho. And later today, we'll post a link to his map of just how dry things are at CPR.org. On a summer day 35 years ago, a couple hiking near Denver heard something unusual, a child screaming for help. They followed the sound to an outhouse. At the bottom of the pit was a toddler named Lori Poland. She'd been kidnapped three days earlier from her home in Sheridan. Poland was rescued, spent a few days in the hospital, and met a pediatrician named Dick Krugman. Today, Poland is a licensed therapist, and Krugman is the former dean of the CU Medical School. They are friends, and together they're launching a foundation to combat child abuse and neglect. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Laurie, sketch out a little more of this story as you've come to understand it as an adult. So you were kidnapped by a man named Robert Paul Thoret. Mm -hmm. What happened to you in those three days? Yeah, well, so... Um I was taken from my front yard. Robert drove up uh, while my dad went inside to get a popsicle for my brother and I. And um, just in a few short seconds, he pulled up with the passenger door open and asked if I liked candy. And so I said yes, like any three 
eight-year-old child who loves candy and sugar. <laughs> um, and I got into the car with him, and off we went. And he took me up to the mountains here in Colorado and proceeded to abuse me and then um, left me for dead in the pit of the outhouse. Um, and like you explained, about three and a half days later, bird watchers needed to use the restroom and um, heard me crying and and they asked what I was doing there. I told them that I lived there. Uh, and then I was, after a few hours, reunited with my family, uh, taken to the hospital. And then about a week and a half later, was taken to the Kemp Center to do an interview um, with Dick and his team. The Kemp Center, just tell us briefly what that is. And this this was yeah. ahead of the legal process that ensued. Yeah. So the Kemp Center is an organization that focuses on child abuse and neglect. Um, and, and at that time, Dick was the director of the program there. So they work with children and families who experience abuse. How is it to tell that story to us? You know, um, I've been a motivational speaker for uh, the better part of 15 years and have shared my story with thousands of people. Um, Oftentimes when I share my story, it's really just about telling people that there's hope and there's a chance for them. Um, A lot of people experience uh, horrific childhood traumas, and I just like to give them hope that no matter what we go through, we have an opportunity to get through it. You were so young when you were kidnapped, when you were sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. and left for dead. Yeah. Do you have pictures in your mind of, of, of that? Time. Yeah, um, I have a couple of memories. One of uh, one of them was being in the car with Robert Thread, and then the other one was um, being in the pit. Um, I had to. I was really upset because I went to the bathroom, and I was. I'd just been potty trained, and I remember worrying that my mom was going to be upset with me that I. Um, wasn't successful in my potty training. And so those are my two conscious memories. I have a lot of subconscious memories and, um, you know, those kind of things. That I imagine have come out over the years? They have. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they kind of uh, hit a peak when I had my own children, um, especially my daughters, that uh, brought up a lot for me. And um most of my memories are around trust and um, attachment and abandonment and really predictability. I need to kind of know what's coming. Um, I need to p- be able to plan and to have some sense of order in my life so that I don't have that same um, fight or flight experience that I experienced when I was three. You are a counselor today. Yeah. And, and we'll talk about your professional life in a moment. No coincidence, I'm sure, that yeah, you got right. into a helping <laughs> profession. But Dr. Krugman, uh, let's put this in, in some perspective. Uh, Lori's experience as a kidnap victim is, is obviously rare. You didn't mm-hmm. know the kidnapper. Uh, but do other victims of abuse and trauma uh, grow up with similar long-term challenges, this idea of trust, for instance? Uh, Ryan, uh, abuse and neglect in childhood can be, if it's one time and it's simple, can be of no consequence. Most abuse and neglect, particularly that, like Lori's case, and those that occur within the family and go on for years, can have substantial long-term impacts on uh, children and adults. Uh, We now know through this, uh, through work that's been done now for over 25 years, uh, that when you look at 
the adverse childhood experiences uh, that children have, which five of them, uh, and there's a list of 10, include forms of abuse. Others are divorce in the family, having a suicide, having alcoholic uh, parents, etc. These, if you have four or more of these childhood experiences, lots of people have one uh, or two, but Mm -hmm. if you have four or more, the odds of having serious physical and mental health problems as an adult are significant. And that's why intervening early and understanding this whole process early uh, is so important. There are thousands of three-year-olds who've experienced uh, forms of trauma, uh, some as severe, some not as severe as Lori. Uh, The vast majority have grown up pretty well. Uh, We think that her... uh, kidnapper uh, and predator was himself once a three-year-old who experienced a lot of adverse experiences. Well, interesting. So the idea is that this is related to the cycle of abuse. It is. We know that uh, nearly all abusers have experienced abuse in their childhood, but it's really important to understand that the vast majority of of abused children grow up and never repeat the cycle. Mm-hmm. But but their, the effect on their lives is profound. Yeah. And so this foundation that you're founding, it's called the National Foundation to End Child Abuse and Neglect, or ENDCAN, is aimed at helping people understand the link between childhood trauma of various kinds and some of those very painful adult behaviors and experiences. That is the goal. Yeah. And we, uh, but to do that, we're not going to do it. We're not a research team here. You're not actually doing the research. So what is your model for how you want this foundation? Our model is like the March of Dimes or the American Heart Association. Every organ of the body, every disease, and about 20 different genes have national fundraising organizations supporting research training. They've been doing it for 50 years. The March of Dimes eliminated polio. There's been nothing for child abuse and neglect nationally until this year. Why, uh, Lori, did you decide this was the right time? Yeah. um, So Dick has been my professional mentor for uh, about the last seven to eight years. But again, it's a connection that goes back to when you were three. Yeah. I reconnected with Dick when I was um, a senior in high school doing a research paper on abuse. And um, I called him up and met with him and like the very next day. And then we stayed in contact every couple of years. That was big, by the way. I... uh, (laughs) When you do this work, it's not always that people come back years later and say thank you. Uh, Lori actually, after I answered all her questions for her term paper, said, you know, uh, my mom told me you and Dr. Jones saved my life, and I just wanted to say thank you. So we called and woke up David Jones, who was his child psychiatrist in England at midnight, (laughs) uh, and they chatted for a half hour because it's a rare a rare event to reconnect. This was a psychiatrist who had worked with you as yeah. a young child. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from the time that I was, I mean, as long as I can possibly remember, I knew that I wanted to do what David 
Jones and Dick had done for me. And um, and so I became a counselor and therapist and worked with children and families. I still have a small practice on the side. Um, but Dick and I, about two and a half years ago, were having lunch. And I said, I'm ready to do something bigger. I, I know that I have a greater calling in the world. And he said, well, I've been dreaming about this thing. And, and all the, in all of our conversations, we talked about the not understanding the long-term effects of child abuse and not unknowing what the outcomes of interventions and treatment services and things like that are. And, and so, breaking the silence. Yeah. Because this is an area nobody wants to talk about right. publicly. And our goal in the first couple of years is to see if we can move people uh, to think of abuse and neglect as uh, a health and mental health problem, not just a social and legal problem. Along with a public health problem. It, it's the goal of this new national foundation to end child abuse and neglect. Its founders, Lori Poland and Dick Krugman, are my guests. And, uh, Lori, to bring the, the story somewhat full circle, yeah. I, I think people will be eager to know what happened to your abuser and kidnapper. Sure. Um, so he spent, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison um, for sexual abuse, kidnapping, and attempted murder. And he was. He, out- he changed your life forever and spent 10 years? Well, he was sentenced to 10 years. He was released after six years. Um, and then he moved to California and got married and um, lived a life there. Um, skipped out on his parole and his financial obligations to our family and to me. And, um, and then he reoffended about eight years ago, uh, seven or eight years ago. And, um, I don't know where he is now. My focus is more on trying to help those who are interested in being helped and, and who have experienced difficulties, uh, and just trying to pay it forward. And to break the cycle. Absolutely break the cycle. Yep. yep, and break the silence. There's, there are millions of previously traumatized, abused uh, children who are now adults in our society mm-hmm. who we hope will be the reservoir uh, of resources to help us get this foundation moving. Yeah. What, what new ground is there to cover when it comes to... Uh, I guess, researching what leads people to abuse or the effects of abuse? There's what so, are the questions you want to answer? So many so things. Many. Uh, basic research, clinical research. Uh, Lori alluded uh, to outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, our child protective services system in the United States and really all over the world uh, have no idea what the long-term, much less the short-term, impacts are on the children and families they serve. There's a huge need for training. We're actually going to start with a contest to see if if we could reimagine, knowing what we know now, if we were starting over uh, the way Henry Kemp did back in 1962 when we started the child abuse, uh, uh, child protection systems in the country, how should we redesign it so that it really helps children and families? so that we actually know the outcomes and we think of it as the long-term problem it is, not just an intervention uh, to save a child overnight. So there's a lot of mystery about what the long-term effects are. Absolutely. You know that there are long-term effects. You're not entirely sure what they are, how deep they go. We also know that there are some prevention programs 
that currently exist that are phenomenal in this country. That is to stop the abuse in the first place? I mean, yes. that seems like... Early intervention with families ho- holy to prevent grail. it from even happening. Right. Exactly. And like so what? There, uh, nurse Family Partnerships, a program called Safe um, Safe Care, SEEK. Um, it's making nurse it is, Family Partnerships, yeah. by the way, goes in often into homes with... with yeah, with infants. Newborns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Newborns, yeah. that's yeah. right. Yeah. It, you make it as easy for a potentially abusive uh, parent to pick up the phone and call for help before they abuse their child. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being with us. Yeah. We heard from Dick Krugman, former dean of the CU School of Medicine, and Lori Poland. She's a therapist at Denver Counseling Options, and together they're starting the National Foundation to End Child Abuse and Neglect. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Our next guest takes mundane sounds and turns them into something wondrous. Sounds like... Those are scissors cutting. That's just the thunking of a glass table. This is a broken radiator, not exactly music to the ears, unless those ears belong to Dan Tarot of Denver. He's an electronic artist and composer who's inspired by just about any sound. The rustling of leaves, squeaky furniture, melting snow, bugs crawling. He records them, then flips, reverses, stretches, and twists those recordings. Here's what became of the radiator. But it doesn't stop there. The radiator, glass table, and scissors eventually become this. Dan Taro has hundreds of tracks like this. And he chose a select few for his first official release, Spring Drips. The album earned him an award from the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. Hi, Dan. Hi. What I have not yet mentioned is that you accomplished all of this. As a high school student, you've just finished your senior year. How do you find the time? I understand you're also on debate. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time on bus rides going to school. I was about an hour and a half away by bus. Oh, wow. So I'd spent a lot of my time on these, get up early in the morning and then open up my laptop and just settle down to write music for about an hour and a half. And then after I started driving, I was actually given an off period at my school to just write music. So that was really great. I understand you've been gathering sounds, writing original songs for about seven years. Yep. Uh, But music for a bit longer than that. I had a bit of um, music lessons with piano and guitar before that. Okay. So you started the the musical creation, your own tracks, in about middle school, I guess? Yeah. Yep. How, how, how did you develop such a unique palette? I think 
I would trace it back to piano lessons because I was never able to sort of read music, I think, back then. I'm dyslexic, and it was really tough for me to be able to sort of figure it out by how it looked on paper. So I always was apt to using my ear when I would practice. And I started to just listen to everyday things and just kind of take inspiration from the things and sounds around me. Even things like traffic, just today on the way over here, I was kind of intrigued by the sound of this truck that was going by me that had this really low rumble that I could hear even through sort of the glass of the window. That was kind of interesting to me. I also, you know, depending on when I'm making music, I might take sound sources from the internet or field recordings or people that I have come into my studio, and then I'll just kind of use those as starting points and jumping off for songs. Uh, You say that you sometimes bring people into the studio to make noise? Do you, yeah. mean, do you mean singers? Sort of. I mean, it's really strange for them. Um, I had my girlfriend come into the studio. She's not a musician, but she was um, just flying back to college. And so we had like 30 minutes. And so I went to the piano and played all these melodies and sort of came up with a few things that I, like a few motifs that I really found intriguing and sort of had her go through those and then also sing syllables. Bum, 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 and also say phrases and things like that. And then I was able to like really recontextualize those and make instruments out of her voice. And so I've been playing the last two months. I've just been really just entirely intrigued by those sounds and making instruments with those. That's your girlfriend. She's off to college. You guys are apart now? Yeah. We've been doing long distance for a year. Oh, I see. Yeah. This is a nice way to remember her. Well, yeah. I'm going to go to China with her in like three days. So five days. You're going to China. All right. I bet you're bringing recording equipment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My room is full of audio cables and a handheld recorder I'm bringing. So I'm very excited. I see. Most people would be sort of awash in socks ahead of a trip. You're awash in cables. Mm Mm-hmm. Is it difficult to find uh, the right headspace for this kind of creation, free of, of distractions? It depends. I think my studio, my bedroom, is a place where I would like to say that I've found sort of a quiet space to work. Although I find that I'm distracted by my parents or other sounds, or I call it the chorus of dogs, but my neighborhood just has this problem where tons of dogs just all start barking at once, and then <laughs> like 15 dogs are barking, so I have to kind of shut my window. Have you recorded that? I have, yeah. Uh-huh. That and pretty much everything else in my neighborhood that makes noise. But uh, So I, I tend to make most of my music on my laptop just because of... I, it's annoying because I, I have some of this gear and it's amazing to use, but when I'm not fortunate enough to be around that, I can just do most of it on my laptop anyway. Gear like what is in your home studio, um, meaning your bedroom? A lot of effects boxes, um, pedals that I've made, synthesizers that I've worked on, and old 70s synths that like their capacitors are leaking, so they have these crazy sounds where they kind of detune. And I like to make them kind of scream. That's one of my favorite like synth sounds, I guess. And so you're as interested in creating sounds... Uh, in your studio with all that equipment as you are gathering it from outside. Well, Dan, I'd like to have you walk us through your process a bit, how an everyday sound evolves into a fully realized song. And why don't we start with this sound? So that's the sound of a stick being cracked just outdoors. And then the second sound that you're going to hear is the sound of that same stick being processed and chopped into small bits and pieces and then arranged so that they make more of a percussive sound. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So this is like a twig or something. Yeah, a bit of a pretty big piece of bark, actually. Okay, where where did you find it? Uh, in a cemetery near my house. In a cemetery. Yeah. And then let's hear this final piece. My gosh, it's so haunting. I suppose it's perfect for a cemetery. Do you, do you spend a lot of time in the cemetery? Yeah, I do actually, because my neighborhood is, there's no parks, so it's kind of just the cemetery. So I get to go on walks and bike around there. And it's really nice because I can kind of get lost in there because it's massive. And um, I love walking around and just looking at the names and kind of coming up with stories for each one or thinking about, you know, the date or, you know, it's a bit gruesome, but, you know, the families that there are different dates when they all sort of pass and you have to think about, like, why did it happen in that way or, like, what could have caused that? And it's a bit, I don't know, it's just kind of in a thought experiment or time. I mean, in, in, in that way, you're not writing songs so much as stories, I suppose. Sure, yeah. Where do you hope your music winds up? Like, I was thinking if they ever do a third Twin Peaks, <laughs> I can imagine hearing this track in it. Oh, that, well, that'd be fun. Um, I'd like to have my music going to people's headphones and just listening on their own time, kind of in their own space. And that's where I often listen to my music. While these might sound more avant-garde, there are some tracks that are definitely more danceable or sort of, uh, you know, they still take a strange approach to doing that. I might still use found sounds or sampled sounds or whatever, but... I think they still can, like, really hold their weight as just songs on their own. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Denver musician Dan Taro. He has just graduated high school, and his debut album earned him an award from the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. I'll say that you perform under the name Grotto, and uh, why don't we hear from this new album, Spring Drips. Now, this track, Do We Need to Know, has some slightly more traditional instrumentation, uh, human vocals, a drum kit. Tell me how this came together. So I worked for quite a while with a recording of my friend who's playing drums on this track. So it might not sound like there's a lot of work done on the drums, but so over one recording, I probably took each drum hit and separated it into its own individual section. So I chopped it up. And then I moved each drum hit a little bit to create different swing and rhythm. So in the end, I think I spent probably like 20 hours just working on the drums on that track. Wow. But, you know, that was kind of a learning process, just trying to figure out what I could do or maybe reversing certain drum hits or making fills or something like that. So just in that section, I have a lot of, when I hear this track, I just really go back to that editing process with the drums. You do DJ at house shows, other venues around town. I mean, it strikes me that for someone who likes to spend hours carefully crafting his songs in the solitude of a studio, creating that type of live music might be a challenge. 
Sure. And I think that's one of the more intriguing parts for me. I think with live performance and electronic music, that was one of the things that got me hooked. It's because when you go to an electronic show, you don't have any idea what to expect. I think when I played guitar, when you strum a guitar, you know exactly what happens when the pick hits the string and it vibrates and resonates. And with electronic music, for me, when I've played live, I've made four or five different huge iterations of my live set. And right now I'm in a version where I play back little bits of audio and I can sequence them and play them and loop them in different ways. And it's very much live. So when I'm playing it, I can make huge mistakes and it might sound terrible. So I like (laughs) the idea of being like having failure built into it. And so that's something that reminds me and kind of takes me back to my days of like playing instruments because you can also make mistakes when you're playing. I'm glad you mentioned failure because uh, you got this award from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver uh, and it was a failure awards scholarship, mm-hmm. which is for high school seniors who, quote, demonstrate a willingness to risk failure in the pursuit of something original and authentic, no matter how harebrained, impractical or absurd. What what do you think the, the judges saw as risky? Well, I think that my conception of why it demonstrated risk was because I spent so much time on it. I probably over 2000 hours working on this album. Wow. And you know, there's not really an audience for it, at least in Denver. And I was playing house shows and I don't think people really totally came to appreciate it, especially in the process of building it. And it was sometimes discouraging when, you know, my mom or someone else would just really have no idea why I was doing it or kind of not understand it. But in the end, it didn't really discourage me. I was still very into it and I enjoyed it. So I was still going about making it and having a great time. Speaking of of being discouraged, I, I understand that you had tried to get into like one of the arts high schools, Oh, yeah. So in eighth grade, I tried to get into DSA for guitar, for classical guitar. But as I said, you know, being dyslexic and not really having the ability to read music very well, I just failed. So it was terrible. And um, so I did not get in. And I'm pretty glad, actually, because I I really like to learn on my own. And I think with electronic music, it's been a lot of reading on the Internet, trying to figure out how to go about these things in my own way. And I don't think having the sort of set structure would really lend itself well to my sort of taste and type of music that I create. How will you use the scholarship from MCA Denver? Um, so it's a, it's basically a coupon for college. And so. <laughs> okay. Is it a, is it a good coupon? Is it a double coupon? Well, I mean, $10,000. So I think that'll be really helpful because student debt is kind of scary. You're headed to Reed College in Portland. Is that right? Yes. What are you going to study? I'm not sure yet. I think computer science and music. Seems like a good combination for you. Yeah, I think with all the programs and things that I make. Well, before we let you go, I want to get your thought, given that you have such fine-tuned ears, on something for us. Laurel. 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 Okay, which one do you hear? I hear Laurel. Really? I I still have not heard Laurel. Okay. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Electronic artist Dan Taro of Denver. His debut album, Spring Drips, is out now, and he says a new EP is already in the works. This is Colorado Matters. Almost 
Five years into full marijuana legalization, there are still gray areas, like how concerned should child welfare agencies be about parents who use marijuana recreationally or children who use it medically? CPR's Anne-Maria Wad reports some parents say they've been treated like criminals for using a legal substance. Before Vicky Trujillo started treating her 12-year-old son Jonah with cannabis, she says he often couldn't control himself. The worst behavior would come out in class with other children who had behavioral problems. So when one acts up, it's always like a domino effect. So they were just being bad kids, like, you know, out of control, cussing and throwing stuff. He would destroy a classroom. Among Jonah's diagnoses, ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder, impulsive mood disorder, and oppositional defiant disorder. He used to be on a battery of medications with long lists of side effects. If it was certain kinds of medication, he was a zombie. He didn't really function. One of those medications, an antipsychotic, left Jonah with violent spasms. Trujillo says at one point, they became life-threatening. We had called the ambulance, and the ambulance came. It took him eight minutes, I think, to wake him up. It was after that that Trujillo turned to marijuana edibles and CBD oils for her son. She talks about the drug like a miracle cure, which is why she was so surprised by what happened next. So I received a referral with some concerns about your kiddos. That call from Denver caseworker Lindsay Luce came in July of last year. I received this referral with these concerns that he was possibly taken off of his meds and put on CBD oil, which the the concern comes in is that, you know, for marijuana, whether it's medicinal or whatever that, let me finish, whatever that looks like he has to have because he is a minor, he has to have a prescription, right? At the time of this call, Jonah had already been approved for a medical marijuana card. A clinic employee called in the report, concerned about Trujillo's medical choices. According to the notes in her file, it took the caseworker a month after the investigation began to verify Jonah's red card. Currently, Trujillo has no open cases with DHS, and the county will not comment on individual cases. But it's not just children with medical cards that can attract the attention of authorities. Some parental substance use can be a triggering event or a component of a child welfare investigation. Indra Lucero is a lawyer and founder of Elephant Circle, an advocacy group for parenting issues. Lucero says that while some attitudes towards marijuana have softened in the age of legalization, there is still much disagreement over marijuana around children. She had one case where a child was removed over fears they would stumble onto their parents' medical marijuana, which was in suppository form. And Lucero says even moderate recreational use can raise a red flag. Many parents, I think appropriately, are under the impression that since it's now a legal substance, it will be handled more like nicotine or alcohol, um, and that it they couldn't expect that it would be punitive in any way. And they don't realize that it might be until they encounter a social worker in the hospital or a nurse in the hospital who says we're going to refer this to child welfare. The State Department of Human Services says marijuana use alone is not enough to open up a case against a parent. But county child welfare departments have discretion over how to interpret that. Paige Rosemond is the Associate Director of Programs for the Office of Children, Youth and Families at the State Department of Human Services. 
She says different attitudes about marijuana use, especially child marijuana use, may explain why a family is reported to social services. We really try to remove those biases in how we approach a family, and that's why we have the rules, the regulations, statute guiding that that decision-making, and really focusing on what is the impact to the child. Right now, the department doesn't know how many hotline calls have to do with marijuana, but should be able to track that data soon. And Roseman says the department does train caseworkers to think more holistically about marijuana use in the home. We really focus, as opposed to what the substance is, the legality of the substance, um, how is that substance in turn impacting the parent's ability to provide care. But some parents may still feel compelled to keep their use hush-hush, to stay on the right side of Child Protective Services. Parents who sign their children up for medical marijuana don't get to stay anonymous, though. Which doesn't bother Denver mom Vicki Trujillo. She says she's got nothing to hide. I, I express it a lot to my son. Don't ever be ashamed or have to hide it. I don't hide it from nobody that my son is a cannabis patient and that I am a a mom of a cannabis child. Colorado is looked to nationally as a leader in recreational and medical marijuana. But stories like Trujillo's show that on a case-by-case basis, for families, it can be a lot more complicated. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. That is Colorado Matters on this primary day. Live coverage throughout the evening at CPR.org and on our airwaves. Thanks for being with us.